So in looking at the Satipatthana Sutta and the fourth way of establishing mindfulness, or the fourth foundation of mindfulness, initially it can look a little bit puzzling because it can seem at first glance to be less practical than the first three foundations because when you look, you, you see this series of lists talking about various aspects of the dhammas of life. There's two lists in that which I think are of particular relevance in terms of our practice. One is the list, once more, of the hindrances, those dear friends keep reappearing, don't they? They keep reappearing not only in our practice, but they keep reappearing in the teaching. The other of the lists, which has, I think, particular significance for our path, is is what is sometimes referred to as the factors of awakening or the supports of awakening. These are very important dimensions for us to explore in our practice. It's very easy to forget or, yeah, to forget how much of this path is actually concerned with cultivation. And I spoke about this a little bit last night, about how we are continually cultivating the conditions of awakening, the conditions of releasing, the conditions that lead the mind to a place of ease, well-being, mindfulness. I think the Buddha was a very, very realistic person. You know, when you read the discourses, you so much get the sense that, you know, in his own path, he he actually worked with a mind that looks uncannily like our own. Otherwise, he wouldn't know so much about it. You know, it wasn't like he sat down under the Bodhi tree, you know, with this mind, you know, that was already perfected and, you know, simply suffused with bliss and rapture. His mind, actually, he knows about, he knew about the mind because he looked at his own mind, at his own heart. And one of the things I think very clearly recognized is that there is a tension in waking up. We cannot deny this. I'm sure you've all experienced that over these days. It's not as if we just prance into a retreat with the intention to be awake and expect our mind and heart and body just immediately cooperates. You know, good idea. You know, why didn't I think of that before? You know, it's... it's, (laughs) There is a tension in waking up. We all recognize this. This is what, now we can see that tension as being very negative. You know, oh, why is my mind doing this and it shouldn't be doing this? We can also actually see that tension as being creative because this is where we practice, not only in retreats but in our lives. This is where we cultivate. So it's very important in our practice that we are not just focusing about what we need to get rid of or what we'd like to get rid of, but what are we cultivating that allows the falling away of the difficult, of the struggle. Now, 
<clears throat> we have all had many moments, I'm sure, in this retreat where we've had very, very intimate encounters with the hindrance factors that we've spoken about a lot, that the Buddha spoke about a lot. And I hope through those encounters that you haven't come to the conclusion that somehow your meditation is a failure. But instead to see that the hindrance factors are not just, you know, how something that happens in the first two days of retreat, then we get over them and get on with the practice. That these are mental states that so permeate our lives, permeate how much how much they permeate our lives, almost as if they're a kind of default mechanism of confusion. You know, we, we can wake up in the morning with the hindrance factors just rushing through. You know, we can go to bed at night with the hindrance factors just rushing through. So I think the reason I've spoken about so much is we learn to take these quite seriously, not seriously and grimly, but we realize that this is the tapestry that we're working with. This is the mind fluid changing that we're working with. And in case you've forgotten what these hindrance factors are, or somehow you have, you know, sort of thought you were exempt, um, remembering that whole movement of craving for sensual pleasure, for becoming, for non-becoming, how that arises in our thoughts, in our movements, in our very small choices in the day. And it so can be so gross, but also can be so subtle, you know, just as leaning towards what is more pleasant, I want, I need, how do I keep? I'm sure you've had one or two encounters with aversion. Um, in, in all its forms, you know, the resistance, the judgment, the blame, the shame, you know, there's such a big spectrum in, in aversion, but it's basically this oppositional stance in life, you know, I just don't want this. You know, as human beings, we want to feel good. This is our, one of our primary drivers in our life. It's quite understandable. It's quite natural that we would want to feel good. When we get into insisting on feeling good, we get into trouble. Because that's where we somehow step out of the first noble truth. Actually, that there is unsatisfactoriness in this life. We are asked to meet it if we're going to live with compassion, if we're going to live with mindfulness. We've certainly experienced those moments, particularly psychologically, probably, of, of agitation, restlessness, you know, all the proliferation, all the ways that we, we want to keep rearranging the furniture of our mind and the furniture of our lives and, you know, how, in order to reach this perfect moment. Certainly had the experiences of sloth and torpor. We may no longer be, have our be nose diving into the floor, but but you know there's a certain level of sloth and torpor which is just about a kind of numbness, a kind of dissociation, kind of just not being present. We've certainly experienced doubt, states of mind. These states of mind running through our lives that govern can govern in the absence of mindfulness how we act, how we don't act, what we say, what we don't say, the choices we make. One of the key pieces for me in understanding the hindrance factors is the way in which they sabotage intention. 
This is one of the primary functions of the hindrance factors, is to sabotage intention. You know, we may go into our life with the intention to, to, you know, to meet our life with as much kindness as possible until aversion arises or we're irritated or frustrated. We completely forget that intention. You know, we may go into our life with the intention to find contentment until something, you know, kind of delightful shouts at us and says, you know, get me, you need me. We completely forget about contentment. So we see that in the practice. I don't think anybody ever comes in this room with the intention to, you know, this is a good 45 minutes to obsess. I'm really going to go for it. You know, most of us come into the room, you know, with the intention to be present, and yet the moment some of that agitation arises, the intention is forgotten. So the hindrances are constantly sabotaging, sabotaging our intention to really live in, in aligned with what we most deeply value in this life, what we hold dear, you know, the care, the compassion, the wakefulness, the kindness. The hindrances keep sabotaging that intention. So how do we respond? Not res- how do we respond? Not by fighting the hindrances, but by cultivating. What are we cultivating? the factors, the qualities that help us to stay more aligned with the intentions we really value and cherish. We cultivate the factors that help us to to bring about the wakefulness that allows us to meet the winds of the hindrances without being overwhelmed. Mindfulness is the first of those qualities. We spent many days here. Everything begins with sati. Everything begins with knowing what is going on. Everything begins by being able to recognize what is actually occurring. It is sati or mindfulness that takes us from habit to being present. It's sati or mindfulness that takes us from impulsiveness to intentionality. It is sati or mindfulness that takes us from confusion and unconsciousness to being clearly awake in this moment. Sati is a cultivation. It's not a given. It's a cultivation. And we've spent so many hours in this retreat learning what it means just to cultivate that capacity for mindfulness place of taking our seat in the moment, a way of protecting the heart, a way of protecting the mind, a way of learning to open to what is to receive the simplicity and the simple truths of every moment. Everything begins with sati. It is the first step, the step of waking up that permeates the whole of the path. Sati is what allows for one of the other qualities of investigation. Really beginning to probe a little bit. Sometimes the the Buddha used the metaphor of, of being a surgeon, a doctor. He says first you actually really need to kind of probe the wound, to probe the illness, to be able to come to a diagnosis. When you have the diagnosis, you can bring about the remedy. 
investigation has two le many levels, actually, I would say. There is certainly a quality of reflective investigation in this path. You know, when we reflect upon the teachings of impermanence, of non-self, of dukkha, when we actually see how does this apply to me? What is the truth of that in my own experience? What are the implications of that in my own experience? This reflective investigation is an important part. We need to have an intellectual agreement with what we're doing here. If we don't have even an intellectual agreement with what we're doing here, we won't do it. You know, if we sat up here and says, you know, you know, this practice is going to transport you into being a superhuman being, we'd say, nah, not likely. You know, we won't do it. If if we sit up here and tell you, you know, guess what? The good news is that everything's permanent. <laughs> you know, you'd look at us in bewilderment. These people are nuts. I'm going home. You know. <laughs> We actually need to have this sense of agreement before we actually take the teaching on board and say, okay, this means something for me in my life. But there's another level of investigation. I consider all formal meditation, if undertaken um, wisely, to be an experiential investigation. You know, if I sit and I experience a pain in my knee, my first habit pattern is to flinch and to run. If I find the willingness to stay with that and explore that to see what happens, what can happen when I don't flinch and run, that's experiential investigation. If I see a pattern of mind arising, judgment or blame or shame, and it's a very familiar pattern because I know it through mindfulness, I know it through sati, I come to know the patterning of my own experience. If I see a very familiar pattern, say, of judgment arising, and I know it, and I know its outcome, and I say in that moment, rather than jumping into that rut, I might practice some restraint. I might come back to mindfulness of breathing. I might cultivate some metta. That's experiential investigation. Just going beyond the confines of our patterning to see what happens when we go beyond the confines of our patterning. You know, if I see I have a habit pattern of, you know, always being the first in the lunch line, you know, and Sati eventually, five days into the retreat, tells me, you know, how did that happen? You know, and I say, well, what happens, you know, if I actually, you know, actually don't? Let's see what, what arises. That's experiential investigation. All of that is just going beyond the boundaries of the familiar, going beyond the boundaries, questioning the boundaries of the familiar, seeking to walk new pathways in the moment, psychologically, emotionally, behaviorally. All of that is, is experiential investigation. It takes energy, another of these factors. But you probably notice that as the hindrance factors die down somewhat on the retreat, your energy levels go up. Now again, you know, actually I could talk all, I'm not going to talk all morning here, but I need to bring this in a little bit. But anyway, energy is, <laughs> energy is sometimes, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> 
just energy is sometimes just associated with this zip, you know. We think we should get up in the morning, you know, and we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, and that's energy, you know. That's not all, that's not the only definition of energy. One of the translations of energy, virya, means heroism. It means courage. Now, in reality, all of you over these days have been manifesting that factor. I'm sure there's been many times when you hear the bell for a sitting and you think, and you show up. You notice we don't go drag people out of their bedrooms. We don't take roll call. However, we know when you're not here. I have to tell you that too. We know. think you're anonymous out there, you know. <laughs> but you notice we don't do that. Why? Why do you keep showing up in the face of doubt, in the face of tiredness, in the face of aversion? Because of virya, because of energy, because of this quality of heroism, which is actually the willingness to show up unconditionally and draw on something deeper than our passing mind states. You know, those passing mind states that says, you know, do something different, go somewhere else. No, there's something deeper that brings us here, and it is that commitment to that deeper sense of aspiration, which is actually quite important to acknowledge. People have more virya than they often acknowledge. It's what allows for joy, the quality that I spoke about earlier on in the retreat allows us to actually appreciate, celebrate our capacity for wakefulness, the small moments in the day when actually we feel touched, we feel there's a sense of spaciousness, of ease, of appreciation. Joy is important in this practice, you know, it is an inspirational quality. It's an awakening quality, that sense of possibility in those moments, no matter how small they are, to appreciate them. There's also the quality of tranquility, the calming the formations that we've been cultivating over these days, calming the proliferations, calming the agitation, beginning to you know, bring about this quality of serenity, of calming, so important um, to find that ground within our own being, that there can be that calming of formations. It's what allows us to concentrate, another, if we use that word, but it's what allows us to begin to collect and to gather, to be here wholeheartedly, to be here fully, to be able to attend which allows actually for the arising of equanimity, this, this quality of poise, of equilibrium, of balance, not falling into extremes, the equanimity that allows us to embrace all events and experiences equally, the equanimity that allows us to embrace the inevitable losses, the inevitable changes in our life, without being shattered, the equanimity that allows us to embrace the people we love and those that we struggle with equally with care, the equanimity that allows for the calming of greed, hatred, and delusion and really awakens the heart 
really liberates the heart. This is our practice. The whole of our practice is, 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 is involved in this very creative tension of nurturing the qualities of awakening amidst the hindrances, not somewhere else. This is, in a way, the fabric, the very cloth of this path. It's what we do moment to moment. Okay, so once more, taking our seat, settling. These first moments of just establishing a foundation of mindfulness, a ground of mindfulness, of wakefulness within the body, feeling your posture, your body sitting, simplifying, calming, establishing, connecting. Mindful of all that arises in your body. Mindful of quietude and sounds. Mindful, simply mindful of all the thoughts, the states of mind that are present in this moment. And in the midst of all of this, establishing simplifying just the felt sense of the body sitting, the body breathing.
So we have a full day of practice today and really encourage you to appreciate and to enjoy the preciousness of being here. To enjoy your own capacity for wakefulness. To enjoy your own capacity to really honor the intentionality that can be so transformative in our lives, to be present, to be awake, to meet all the moments that arise with kindness. This afternoon there's a few adjustments to the schedule, I'm sure you've noticed. really encourage you to be aware of your own mind's response. Very often in transitions, our mind is prone to go towards agitation. It's prone to go towards proliferation, towards leaning forward. Here on retreat, we have a sort of microcosmic view of that. How much of our life is, is really an invitation to meet transitions and change with grace and steadiness rather than with familiar mind states. Taking care of the mind, taking care of the heart, being able to just meet what is. Really paying attention to the walking where the mind begins to be somewhere else where we've really encountered this you know, mind-body divide that can so frequent our lives as our body goes through the motions and our mind inhabits some other world which is simply fabricated at this moment. Simply fabricated. The world of what might come, the world of what might be, the world that is built. Really learning the capacity to step out of the fabrications, to come back into this unification of body mind and present moment. This is a very fluid thing. It's a very fluid effort. It's a very fluid application. We see the separation, the disconnection, and we learn to bring unification. We learn to bring that that gatheredness, the collectedness of our hearts, minds, inhabiting our body, inhabiting the moment that we're in. So it's a tremendous skill in this, but we know that it's always possible. We don't maintain something in this practice. I know we've talked about sustaining. Sustaining is very different than maintaining in my mind. We don't have a state we're maintaining. We don't have a practice we're trying to maintain. Instead, our very path, our very practice is this ongoing invitational sense to be able to regather, recollect, to be able to begin again. So tremendously forgiving nature in that, that is not there in ideas of maintaining. But the possibilities of beginning again, the possibilities of reestablishing are always available to us. And the mindfulness aware makes us aware of that choice. Instead of unconsciously being lost, we have a choice. We have the choice to return just to what is. This is part, so much part of this practice. 
really looking at that in the walking period, the flights of the mind, the flights of the heart to what is not, to fabrications, being able to re-establish the body is such an ally here. Some of you have heard me use that little bit of a poem before. You know, it says, you know, this body, you are so kind to wait for me while I am gone. In a, <laughs> and when I return, it is to you. We can return. We can return. Okay, so this time now is a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.